The gospel reading, the scripture upon which our sermon is based this morning is found in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, the first eight verses. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any towns of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received and freely give. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask now that the words of my mouth, that the meditation, the thoughts, and the conversations of our hearts and minds together would be pleasing, acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John. Uh, I'm a pastor down in Marin County, associate pastor with Grace Church of Marin, and I'm a friend of your pastor, Brian's. And I just thought I would tell you that you have a great pastor. You have a great pastor because he's a good friend to me, uh, but he loves you. He talks about you often, and he cares for you. And so, thank you for caring for him, for letting him get away from you for a weekend and have a chance to go and worship somewhere else and sit in a pew and receive God's word and be fed. That's a gift that you're giving him, and I know that he's grateful. Brian and I actually uh, go way back. We didn't know each other well, but we both attended Samford University, a little Baptist liberal arts school in Birmingham, Alabama, in the early 90s. And we've made our separate journeys in different places, and so it really is a privilege and a treat for me to find myself here uh, preaching and, and fellowshipping with you all. Uh, Brian and his family and me and my family, Kathy is right here and the kids are down in uh, whatever that you call that room downstairs where they get to hang out and not have to listen to me. They appreciated that, by the way. Uh, we have done a house swap and so we've been camping our way up through uh, Portland, through Oregon, experiencing the beauty of your state. And let me tell you, I grew up in Florida with a lot of beauty. I live in California with unbelievable majesty and beauty, but your state has so much diverse, yummy, good beauty out there. It's amazing. We got to do Crater Lake. Uh, We got to camp near Mount Hood. We just had a fantastic time. And then we've been hanging out here in Portland for the last few days, and we've really enjoyed it. Kathy and I, when we have an opportunity to go and visit another city, love to walk around and sort of try the place on. You know what I mean? Do you do this when you go to another place? You sort of walk around and you experience the beauty and the goodness of what this particular place has, and you wonder, what would it be like to live here? Uh, We just love doing that, and we have really enjoyed Portland. And I was trying to think of all the things that we've enjoyed, and you know them all, right? Because you live here. This is your place. Uh, But some of the things that we really have enjoyed 
are the neighborhoods, right? The walkability, the, the ability to walk out a front door, to turn left and turn left again, and there's a bar and there's a coffee shop and there's a theater that lets your kids have pizza and lets you have um, soda, and there's all sorts of, or whatever else you might enjoy in that theater, right? Uh, we've really enjoyed Portland. Well, one of the things that I love most about Portland in the few days that I've been here is that you Portland people love Portland, right? This is your place, and you know it, and you own it. And that's actually a godly thing. Did you know that? Because God loves this place. God loves Portland. This is his place. These are his people. He loves it, and so he wants you, as his church, to love it for him so that he can love it through you. So that's a really great thing. Uh, We also enjoy worshiping at the churches in the places in which we visit, and that's no different this morning. We're very, very glad to be here. And in some ways, we do the same sort of thing. We try on uh, this church and sort of uh, wonder, what would it be like if this were our worshiping home? And the great thing is, you know what? I sort of already know. I know the central things. I know the important things. I know that you are a church together that takes her identity from the grace of Jesus Christ. I know that you are a church together that receives her purpose and her commissioning from the mission of Jesus. And I know that you are a community that does life together, that you are Jesus' fellowship of difference. And that's one of the things that we see in this little passage this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. And that is this, very simply, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church, his fellowship of difference. And you know what? He loves his church, and he knows how hard it is to be the church. And he even calls you to love her anyway. So let's just dig into those uh, observations in this text this morning. Jesus loves his church. He knows it's challenging, and yet he calls you to dig in and to love her too. You'll see uh, on your uh, reflection page in the beginning of your worship folder that I included, well, I included a number of quotes, but the second to last quote there on that first, the inside cover of your, uh, the inside page of your cover is a quote from Scott McKnight. He's a pastor, uh, he's a theologian, he's a writer, and he mentions this uh, in a book called A Fellowship of Difference, referring to uh, the church. He says that getting the church right is so important. The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. And when this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show-and-tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as family. Does that ring true to you? Do you believe him? Do you buy into that? Well, Jesus is inviting you to do just that this morning uh, in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. We're at a little bit of a disadvantage. At Grace Church of Marin, we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and so our congregation has a little bit of context of what comes before and what's about to happen surrounding chapter 10, and I know you guys may not. And so let me just say that in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches what's probably the most beautiful the most rich, uh, theologically 
ethically demanding sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And, and when he does, he lays out what it means to be his follower, to be a member of his family, to be part of his kingdom that he's come, right? The new age, the new kingdom that's being established in Jesus. And then he comes off the hill after preaching, laying out this beautiful vision, and he starts to show his disciples and the crowds around him just what it looks like to be the kind of people that inhabit his family, right? And so Jesus goes around, and do you know what he does? He just loves people. He loves people like crazy. He loves hurting people. He loves doubting people. He loves wealthy people. He loves theologically astute but misguided people. He loves children. He loves the dying. He loves the hurting. He loves the bereaved. He loves the broken. He loves the whole. He loves every single person with whom he comes into contact in chapters 8 and 9. If you have an opportunity, go back this afternoon or throughout this week and read Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 and just see how well Jesus loves people. Right? And this should come as no surprise to you because for one reason or another, you're sitting in this room, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus Christ or you're brand new and you lost a bet and somebody invited you to come into this room. Right? You're here because somebody has at least told you that Jesus Christ is the center of it all for a Christian, for somebody who claims his name and participates with his people. It shouldn't surprise you. I hope it doesn't surprise you that Jesus loves people well. And the great news is that means he loves you well. And the even better news is that means he loves the person sitting next to you well and the person sitting in front of you well and your city well. Right? Jesus loves people well, and I resonate with that. Do you resonate with that? It's, I think, a little bit easier to resonate with this wonderful truth that Jesus loves people, individuals, well, sacrificially, richly, with grace and tenacity and justice and everything you need to be a whole human being. He loves you that way. As a pastor having spent most of my life in one church or another, I find it a little bit harder to receive the truth that Jesus doesn't just love his church as individuals. He loves his church as an institution. He loves his church as a gathering of individuals in one particular place, sharing his spirit, united around the glory of his gospel, and participating in his mission. He loves that thing, right? The thing that we call the church. And we know that he loves the church, the institution, because he establishes it right here in this passage. Did you catch that? It's very subtle. Look in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, who, by the way, is one of these 12 disciples who has gone on to write this gospel, which is an account of the life of Jesus, not just as a history, but so that you might believe and might have life. And Matthew says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then Matthew does this brilliant thing. He names the disciples. I love that. He names them. You see, what is the church? Right? The church is, very simply, the people that are called into relationship with Jesus. Jesus calls the 12 disciples to himself, and they're called as they're called into relationship with Jesus, into relationship with one another, and then they're sent. 
They're sent to be a part of this kingdom work that Jesus has called them to. And that's the church. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. But he's not giving this abstraction. He's not giving a dictionary definition or even a biblical dictionary definition of what the church is. Now, what is he giving us? He's giving us these 12 guys, these 12 dudes, these, these misfits, right? In some ways, uh, these mishaps. If you're going to start a corporation, if you're going to start uh, a business venture, if you're going to start something entrepreneurial, and you're going to bring somebody in to your little team that's going to start it, who do you want? You want the kind of people that are going to represent the kind of business or organization or institution that you want to give to Portland, right? You want to make sure that those first people are the right people, because if the first people aren't the right people, it's hard to correct course after that, right? Well, who does Jesus choose? He chooses 12 very different, very interesting men. Because he wants us to know that he loves his church even when his church is challenging. Right? Uh, Pope Benedict uh, XVI wrote a fantastic little devotional that I commend to you. I put a quote from him on the first page. Uh, The devotional is called Jesus, the Apostles, and the Early Church. And uh, the title is much more dry than the reading. The reading is actually one of those things that you can put by your bedside and you can read a chapter every day and get through the summer. And I can assure you that you'll be uh, the better for it. And in this little book, he does a biographical sketch of these 12 disciples. And we don't know a ton about these men, but we know enough to know that they were very, very different from one another. Uh, We know that Matthew is a tax collector, right? And you, if you've read the Bible at all, you know that tax collectors in the ancient Near East in the first century were not the kind of people that you wanted to be. A tax collector uh, was a sellout. A tax collector was an Israelite who was still claiming allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in some way, but he had sold out to the Roman Empire, right? He had sold out to the oppressors. And not only had he sold out to the oppressors, he was doing their work for them. And not only was he doing their work for them, he was doing their work at the expense of his brothers and sisters. And not only was he doing their work at the expense of his brothers and sisters, he was also stealing and cheating his brothers and sisters because that's the way that he could get rich. And that was Matthew. Matthew is listed in these 12, but so is a guy named Simon. Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter. And Simon the Zealot is a very different sort of guy than Matthew. In fact, Simon the Zealot is the polar opposite of a guy like Matthew. Whereas Matthew is a sellout, Simon the Zealot is a zealot. He's zealous. He has zeal for the holiness and the purity of God and his people. He loves Israel. And anyone who comes in the way of the purity of Israel is the enemy. And so here you find in the very first 12, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. In these very first 12, you find Peter, who is courageous and passionate and foolhardy. And you find Thomas, who's faithful and stoic. You find men with Greek names. You find men with Hebrew names. You find small business owners. You find those who are most likely artisans and laborers and agrarians. You find people. And each person is different. And so Jesus gives us, in these pages, the blueprint 
of what it means to be a church, to be a fellowship of difference. Uh, Scott McKnight goes on in his book to talk about uh, what a first century church might look like when the Gentile world was invited in. Do you notice that Jesus didn't just establish his 12, he also sends his 12, and he says, go to the house of Israel. In other words, the house of Israel is God's people, but they've lost their way. In the end of chapter 9, he says, they're like a sheep without a shepherd, and I'm the shepherd. And so now I'm going to reconstitute this family around me. And so whoever puts their faith in me is given my spirit, and they're my people, and they're my family. And so the promises, the covenant promises that Josh referred to, they've been given to Israel. So now my disciples go to Israel and invite them back in. Be the church with us. Come and experience life with me and these brothers. And so the disciples' task is to go to Israel. But then as Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, as he's about to ascend, do you know what he does? He recommissions those same disciples and he says, now go. Go into all the nations and bring them into my family. Everyone. Did you notice how much I loved every single person that I came in contact with? I want you to go and love every single person that you come in contact with in the whole world and invite them in to be my family. And family sounds really nice, doesn't it? God's people sounds really nice, doesn't it? But it's the church. It's the church. Jesus sends his disciples out to bring in the nation so that the world might become the church. Jesus loves his gathered people. And why am I belaboring this point? Well, because it's here in the text, but also because I'm convinced, because Jesus experienced life with these 12, excuse me, disciples, that he knows the challenge of being the church. He knows that sometimes when you find yourself in a particular local church with particular individual people with their own individual quirks, right, and foibles and beauties and challenges, that sometimes it gets a little bit messy. Sometimes it gets a little bit hard. And I think that's because the very thing that makes the church, a church, this church, in-town church, beautiful, is what makes it challenging. Right? The church is a fellowship of difference, different people. You see, Jesus didn't love diversity because diversity was a cool thing to love. Jesus didn't love diversity because the culture valued diversity. Jesus wanted his church to be diverse because Jesus loved people. And whenever you put two people together, you get what? Diversity. You get difference. And when you have difference, as beautiful as that is, you have challenge. Right? And so the very thing that makes the church this showcase, this display of God to the world of what family could and can look like, you're going to have trouble. Right? And we know this. We know this. See, one of the nice things about preaching at somebody else's church It's very liberating. I don't know you. So I can say whatever I want. And then Brian gets to clean up the mess. Right? Here's what I'm trying to say. I know, I know, just because the numbers bear true, that in this very room, there's somebody who is right now struggling in relationship with somebody else. In this very room. I know that right now in this very room, there's somebody who's wondering, Is this the church for me? Is there another church in Portland that might be a better fit for me? I know that in this room, 
there's possibly even somebody who might be wondering right now, could I find my way into any church? Or maybe I should just go my way and do my thing with Jesus. Uh, You know Marcus Mumford, the lead singer of Mumford and Sons, and some of you may know that he's the son of Christian parents who are leaders in the Vineyard Church movement in Britain. Uh, Marcus Mumford is a brilliant lyricist, I think. I think he's actually a brilliant theologian. Uh, And he said this in an interview uh, at one point. Excuse me as I find it. He said in an interview with Rolling Stone, I don't really like the word Christian. It comes with so much baggage. So, no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I think the word just conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. You hear what he's saying? He's saying it's hard to be the church. He says it's good to be loved by Jesus and to love Jesus back, but it can be hard to be part of Jesus' people. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, Jesus I love, but you left me with these people, right? That kind of thing. Well, there's some truth in every satire. You know it's hard when you get involved with life with somebody who's different than you. Some of you have married somebody who's different than you, and you found out that that can be challenging, right? What happens when you put together a planner, my wife, and an intuitive kind of feeler, me? You get challenged. Try planning a road trip that way. It's a beautiful bit of a mess, right? Some of you have coworkers who have a different idea of what being a member of a team with a work project ought to be than you do. How is it getting along with that coworker? How is it for you to be productive with them? Don't you often say, if I could just do this on my own, if they would just leave me alone, then I could do this and we could move on and we would be productive, right? They're different than you. How many of you have a roommate who has a different standard of cleanliness than you do? Challenging. Now, think about who is in a church, who is in this church, right? You have different genders, different socioeconomic groups, different races, different cultures, different music styles, different artistic styles, different moral histories, different family of origin histories, different forms of communication, different ages, different marital status. Status? How do you say that? Different status? Right? With a long S? Whatever, right? Political leanings. Points on the introvert-extrovert spectrum. Love languages, ways that you receive and give love. Beliefs in the same congregation. And so, when you rub up against any of those differences, it can be challenging. And I think you've experienced that. Dostoevsky puts it well in the Brothers Karamazov when he says that love in practice is a dreadful thing compared to the love in dreams. I love that. Love and practice is a dreadful thing compared to the love and dreams, right? We love fellowship. We love community. We love diversity. We love difference. Live it for a day. It's a, cha- it's a challenge. Now, Scott Sauls is a friend and a writer, and uh, he says in a book of his, Jesus Outside the Lines, that Christians must navigate the complex and often paradoxical waters of conviction and love. Is it possible to profoundly disagree with someone and love that person deeply at the same time? Let me say that again. 
Is it possible to profoundly disagree with somebody? And he's not talking about the central things. He's not talking about the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and his sacrificial death on our behalf, right? He's talking about those beliefs that are further out on the edge of things, those beliefs that can be debatable, that can be challenging. And he says, questioning, is it possible to profoundly disagree on one of those issues with someone even in your own church, and love that person deeply at the same time? Is it possible to hold deep convictions and simultaneously embrace those who reject their convictions? You see, friends, that is God's grand social experience. The way that we, as Jesus followers, and those of you who are visitors and are invited in and are trying this on, the way that we together work through our differences not erasing our differences, not becoming one homogenous, ooey-gooey thing, but actually celebrating who we are as individuals as we celebrate what is most true about us that we share in common. Life with Jesus, being inhabited by his spirit, and being sent on his mission together. Right? Can that center hold as we work through how to live as difference? And I think the answer is yes. I think Jesus would say that the answer is yes. If you've read Jesus' high priestly prayer, the last prayer that he prays for his disciples in John's Gospel, chapter 17, he says this very thing. He says that his prayer for his church, his followers, is that they would be one so that the world might see the love of the Father for his people. If it's challenging, and it is challenging because We are different. And you know what? It's also challenging because we're a fellowship of difference, right? Jesus invites the disciples into life with himself, meaning they do life in the manner in which he does it, which is what? Deep and sacrificial and gracious and tenacious. You see, Jesus is not one to turn and walk away from his disciples when they get it wrong. Thank Jesus that that is true. You can say that with me if you're a follower of his. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't turn and walk away on me. Jesus extends grace. Jesus extends welcome. Jesus extends forgiveness. How many times? Seventy times seven. As much as it takes. Jesus hangs in there, and he invites us to be that kind of fellowship. And so, listen, I'm not saying that you can't ever leave one particular Christian fellowship and go to another. There are reasons why that might be the case. But what Jesus is saying here is work hard to stay, work hard to commit, work hard to be unified with the brothers and sisters, little and big, old and young, who are with you. They're yours. You are theirs. You are a fellowship. So here's the good news. Some of you right now, I know, are relating to what I'm saying. You're saying, "Mm mm-hmm. Yes. Hard. Check. Challenging. Check. Person behind me. Check. Person in front of me. Check. Me. Check. Right? We're there. So here's the good news. It's challenging because you're different. And it's challenging because you're a fellowship. And so if it's hard, it means it's beautiful. It means that you're doing it. Not perfectly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with lots of grace and lots of forgiveness and lots of saying you're sorry, you're doing it. If it's hard, that's good news. If it's easy, 
you're probably not as different as Jesus wants you to be, and you're not as deep a fellowship as he wants you to be. Does that make sense? So how then can we do it? How then can you do it? What's a way for you as a congregation, as individuals and together, to not just survive being a church body, but to actually thrive? Well, uh, there's a myriad of answers to that question, and I'll give you just one that we find in this text. Um, You need to know that you need one another, not just that you want one another. You need to know that you need to be a fellowship of difference, not just that you want to be a fellowship of difference. Right? And here's the way we see it in this text. This is the first time that Jesus sends his disciples out. Right? Where do we find life as followers of Jesus? Where do we find forgiveness? Where do we find healing? Where do we find wholeness? Where are we becoming who we are made to be? With Jesus, right? Jesus is at the center. That's the center of the Christian faith. And Jesus sends his disciples and he says, you're going to go away from me. And it's going to be hard. And we can relate, right? Because we don't have Jesus physically face-to-face right now until the new heavens and the new earth come again and Jesus returns. We don't have that relationship face-to-face. And so in some ways, we are apart from Jesus in some ways. And Jesus sends his disciples away from him. And he does it, Luke tells us in his gospel, two by two. He sends them out two by two. Why? Because they need each other. They're sent away from Jesus who they need most truly, right? Most deeply. And they're sent away. And the way that they survive, the way that they're able to thrive, to be his community and to be on his mission is to do it together. Right, where do we find Jesus in the church today? Well, we find him in worship. We find him in his word. The Bible says that Jesus is revealed to us in his word. It's a living word. We find him in the sacraments. When you come to this meal, it's his meal. And in a mysterious way, this is his body and his blood for you. We find it when we serve in the ways that he calls us to serve. We find Jesus. And do you know where else we find Jesus? Jesus has put his spirit in you. And he's put his spirit in me. And so we find Jesus in one another. And the more different, unique experiences of Jesus that are in this room, the more you get to experience Jesus. Does that make sense? Which means the more you want to be with Jesus, the more you need one another so that you can be with Jesus. It's truly amazing the way that Jesus decided to remain with his church through one another. And that means you've got to make the turn that being a fellowship of difference isn't just something desirable. It's something necessary. You need it. You can't survive without it. Uh, I was listening to a sermon from a friend of mine the other day, and he talked about a parenting technique that he uses with his children, and I picked it up, and Kathy's smiling because she's probably noticed me start to do this. When his kids would fight over something, right, there was something that they thought they needed more important than they needed the love for one another. And so what he would do is he would tell his boys, stand up, and I'm doing this with my boys now, so I'll change to my personal experience. I'd say, Micah and Asher, get up, stand up, look at one another, put that down, put the iPad down, Now, hug one another. 
And they'll kind of do like this, you know. I said, no, 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 a real hug. Like, like you like each other, like you love each other, like you mean it. Hug. And they'll, like, no, 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 hold the hug. Hold the hug. Right, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. And what happens? They break down. They start to smile. They start to giggle. They start to laugh. And they start to realize, I love this person and I need this person. Of course, they don't know that. But I know that. You know that. Right? We need one another. You've got to dig into that need. You've got to know that the person who drives you nuts is the person that you need. They're God's gift to you, and you're God's gift to them. Greatest theological lesson I ever learned, and I'll close with this illustration. Uh, I was a pastor of a church plant in Brooklyn, New York, for a number of years, and we worshiped in the building that was owned by an African-American Baptist congregation. It was a matriarchal congregation, mostly elderly women over the age of 60. And they worshipped on the bottom floor, and we worshipped on the top floor of this building. And from time to time, uh, we would worship together at their invitation. It was actually um, one of the most humbling invitations and welcomes that I've ever received. They invited us to come worship with them. And when they did, they invited me to preach, which terrified me right? Because it was such an honor. But they decided that they would do the music and the worship, and I would preach. And so we did that. And when we came toward the end of the worship service, uh, and by the way, they didn't even have, they didn't have the resources to have a music team. So they played CDs. You remember what those things are? Discs that go in the slot that you push in, and then music comes out, right? They played CDs of music that they sang along to. And one of the songs was uh, a classic uh, gospel African-American a contemporary gospel song, and the words went like this. I need you to survive. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is his, by the way, you should be glad that I'm not singing this. It is his will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. Okay, so here's the deal. All my difference buzzers are going off, right? Like, we don't sing to each other in church. We sing to God. What are we doing singing to each other? And we're singing from a CD, and everything about this is foreign to me, right? So all the difference buzzers are flashing. And I learned what it means to hold on to the center because we're singing this song, and the worship leader says, okay, Now stand up and face the person who's standing next to you. And so I turn to my right, and there's this little tiny 78-year-old African-American woman, small as can be, beautiful as can be. And then the worship leader said, okay, now take hold of one another's hands. And so we did. So we take hold of one another's hands. and She's got an iron grip, and she's not letting go. And the worship leader says, now, Look at one another in the eyes. Holy moly. Like, this is getting awkward. <laughs> so we do. Look one another in the eyes. Now sing this song. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is his will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. I could have saved thousands of dollars of seminary school, right? 
Because that was education. That was Jesus. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves Portland so much that he's going to use you as a fellowship of difference to love this city? What an adventure. Let's pray that God could use us. Gracious Father, uh, we're grateful to you for your words, even when your words are challenging. And we want to say thank you now for your church. And not just the idea of being a family with God as a father, but the actual people to our right and to our left who are beautiful and lovely and challenging all at the same time, starting with me. We thank you for one another. We thank you that you're calling us to be somebody together greater than we can be on our own and that we might participate in your work. We are so grateful. And so we say thank you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.